Nikaros story. Trimalchio, the host of the dinner party, was berating his cook in front of all his guests. This pig has not been gutted, he exclaimed. Strip the cook to the waist and flog him at once. Most of the guests, as well as Trimalchio himself, were former slaves, and they all rushed to the shaking man's defence. It could happen to anyone, they cried. It was just a mistake. He forgot. He's only human. He'll promise not to do it again. Everyone, except Enculpius and Ascyltos, the interlopers, posh but broke, they had turned up uninvited in hopes of a free meal. Enculpius' little slave-slash-boyfriend Giton had simpered so nicely that Trimalchio was all for it. He figured such elevated guests could raise him up in society in a way that none of his immense riches ever could. They were happy to eat the food, but sneered and snickered at everything else about the party, from the guests to the hosts to the art on the walls. Well, I suppose you're all right. It could happen to anyone, said Trimalchio, a sly smile playing across his lips. Since you're so forgetful, Gaius, you'd better gut the pig right here and now. I don't trust you to remember it if you take it all the way back to the kitchen. The guests sat back to see what would happen next, all except for Enculpius and Ascyltus, who grimaced and looked horrified. Gaius the cook put his tunic back on, grabbed his knife, and carefully started slicing the pig's belly, at which point, as the skin fell open, hot sausages and cooked black puddings fell out in a delicious-smelling, steaming heap on the tray underneath. Everyone cheered, even the snobs, and Trimalchio looked very pleased with himself. Gaius was sent away with a silver coin and a cup of wine, and everyone helped themselves to the meat. That was a classic Trimalchio, exclaimed Nikaros, wiping tears of laughter from his eyes. Delicious too, added Plocomus through a mouthful of sausage. I thank you all, said Trimalchio, half rising to take a little bow before settling back down to some black pudding. But you have been very quiet this evening, Nikaros, he added. You used to be far better company at dinner. What happened to you? Oh, nothing, said Nikaros absently. I was just thinking, Trimalchio, that's all. I know that's a foreign concept to you. Everyone except the two uptight snobs laughed. Well, stop it, it's bad for you, said Trimalchio. Tell us a story, go on, a true story, mind you. Nikaros, he explained to the other guests, has had the most dramatic and exciting life. Weird and wonderful things are always happening to him, and he always has a story for every dinner he goes to or party he's seen at. I wonder what his story from this dinner will be like, muttered Enculpius to Ascyltos. Come on, Nikaros, entertain me. I've entertained you. You return the favour, cried Trimalchio. All right, said Nikaros, putting on a world-weary sigh. But I can tell you, much as it might surprise you, that nothing really dramatic has happened to me this week. More laughter. I can tell you a good story from longer ago, though, from back when I was a slave still. I'm not sure I should. Cries all around of, no, come on, and why not? Well, we've got such learned guests at this party, said Nikaros, gesturing to Enculpius and Ascyltos. I'm afraid they'll laugh at me. Enculpius and Ascyltos did their best to assure him otherwise, though not very convincingly. Everyone else begged him to ignore them and tell his story. 
Okay, okay, said Nikaros eventually. I'll tell the story and they can laugh at me if they want to. Won't do me any harm. Better to be laughed at with a smile than to be mocked with cruelty anyway. And with that, he launched into his story. Back when I was a slave, I was based at my master's townhouse in a tiny little narrow alley just round the corner from a really good pub. The landlord, Terentius, was well off. He was doing good business, ran a farm out in the country too. He also had this lovely little wife, Melissa her name was. I say little because she was short, but she was a lovely shape, all plump and rounded, such a sexy belly, tastiest little but anyway. To be honest, her very pretty looks weren't the really attractive thing about her. She was also just incredibly kind. She shared everything she had, never refused anything, never cheated on anyone she borrowed from. Well, as you can probably tell, I fell hopelessly in love with her. It wasn't ever really a sexual thing. I just loved her smile and her big heart and I just wanted to be with her all the time. She and her husband used to spend part of the summer in their country house up at the farm and I always missed her horribly. Then, one summer, while my master was away on business in Capua, word got back to us that the husband had died suddenly. I couldn't bear to think of her suffering all alone. Plus, it seemed like a pretty good opportunity to get close to her. So I decided I had to go to her straight away, and before my master came back. Trouble was, their farm was a good step away. I had no horse, and it was the middle of the night. I might have been in the pub when I heard about the landlord's death. You know what the roads are like at night. There's robbers and bandits behind every tombstone. I had a pretty decent master. I had no intention of getting stolen and sold on to someone worse or beaten and robbed and left lying in the street. I got lucky again, though, because my master had left a guest, an old family friend, staying in the house. He was a soldier, a good, tough-looking bloke, Big, wide shoulders, couple of just attractive enough scars and some military tattoos. He was incredibly brave, or so he told us, and he seemed like the perfect travelling companion slash bodyguard. And he was bored enough to be up for the trip, or that's what I figured anyway, when he said yes to a midnight stroll to a farm several miles away to see a woman I fancied and a bunch of chickens. So we set off. By that time, it was the last watch of the night, about two hours after midnight. Full moon was shining so brightly it was as light as noon. Round about the fifth milestone, he said he had to answer the call of nature. I said, yeah, I need to pee too. And we both stopped and hopped behind a couple of tombs to do what we needed to do. I was done after a minute or two and I turned to see how my soldier friend was getting on. Guys, it was the weirdest thing. He'd stripped off all his clothes and put them in a neatly folded pile by the roadside. Then, not behind the tomb, but in full view of the road, he cocked his leg like a dog and pissed in a big circle all around the pile of clothes. I thought, oh, Jove, I'm all alone in the middle of the night with a madman. But it got worse. He started with his hands. He hunched up on all fours and stretched his hands out in front of him and they kept stretching. His fingers crept out along the ground, getting longer and bonier until there were claws, and first started sprouting up all along his wrists and up his arms. Then he sort of thrust his backside up into the air, and first started coming out of his skin all along his 
buttocks and down the back of his legs. The air on his chest grew and started to take over his whole torso and flowed up his neck to cover his head, which had been bald only a few minutes before. Then he raised his face up to the sky and I saw that his nose was stretching, pulling out from his face. I could hear the sickening crack of his bones twisting and breaking and growing outwards. His mouth seemed almost to get pulled into his nose and then he opened it and his teeth were huge and sharp and he looked up and howled at the moon. He had completely turned into a wolf. I can hear some of you sniggering. I'm telling you, this is no joke. I'd never lie about it. It was too horrible. He howled again and then he turned and stared right at me. I was stuck to the spot, frozen in terror. I felt like my soul was about to fly out my body from the sheer fright. Then suddenly he lunged and I ducked and rolled just in time. As I scrambled through the grass, his teeth got close enough to graze my bare leg just above the ankle. But I got lucky. A bunch of wild dogs started barking somewhere out in the woods. The wolf howled again and ran off after them. I managed to peel myself off the ground and go over to look at the pile of clothes he'd left behind. The whole pile had turned to stone. Stray dog wandered up sniffed a bit at it where the soldier had pissed all round the pile and turned around and ran away the minute it got a whiff. I was terrified, but I was more than halfway to Melissa's house, so I drew my iron sword, best defence against magical beings, and just kept on going. I was slow, though. Every time I saw a shadow move, I waved my sword at it, slicing into nothing and killing I don't know how many tricks of the light. The moonlight was no help at all, it just made the shadows deeper. I jumped out of my skin if I heard an owl hoot or a mouse rustle around the grass. I was shaking like a leaf, sweat pouring down my back and down my legs the whole way. I finally reached Melissa's house around dawn. Nikiros, Nikiros, what's happened to you? You look terrible, she cried, wrapping her kind arms around me, sitting me down with a cup of hot wine to still my shaking. I couldn't possibly tell you, I moaned, spilling the wine all over my tunic. Well, whatever it was, it's over now, she said. Though it's a shame you didn't get here earlier, you could have helped us. A wolf got into the yard and attacked the sheep. There was blood everywhere. A wolf, I cried. Yeah, don't worry. Our overseer put a spear through his neck. At that, I screamed in horror and fled straight back to my master's house, leaving Melissa standing dumbfounded on her doorstep. I thought they had killed my master's guest and I was sure that I and every other slave in the household would be crucified for it. So I ran faster than I've ever run before all the miles back to the house. I stopped once briefly to look for where the pile of clothes had turned to stone but there was nothing there but a pool of blood. You're all former slaves, most of you. You can imagine my relief when I staggered into the house chest aching from breathing so hard feeling like Phidippides about to die after running from Marathon, only to find our soldier guest lying in bed, great big ox of a man, very much alive, and human, being treated by our local doctor. He had a nasty-looking wound on his neck, but otherwise he seemed fine. Well, that settled it. He was a skin-changer. 
For the rest of his visit, I couldn't sit down with him or share food or drink with him. I was too terrified. I could never work out whether he really knew what he was or not. He didn't seem at all embarrassed when he saw me, which surely he should have been when I knew he'd been injured while eating the flesh off living sheep's bones. Now, some of you giggling back there might have a different explanation for all this. Fair enough. Think whatever you want. But I swear I'm telling the truth. May your guardian spirits punish me if I'm lying. What a story, declared Trimalchio happily when Nikaros had finished. If it's true, well, it made my hair stand on end. And of course it must be true, because I know Nikaros never talks nonsense or lets his tongue run away with him. At this, there was raucous laughter all around the table. Nikaros laughed along with the rest, but a little hesitantly, nervously scratching his leg just above the ankle. Now I'll tell you my horror story, said Trimalchio, and he launched into a story about a witch and a straw mannequin. Nikaros listened and laughed along with the rest, but lapsed back into quiet himself. Enculpius and Ascyltos, the snobby interlopers, continued to snigger behind their hands at everyone and everything around them, while young Giton picked miserably at his food. After telling his story, Trimalchio decided to have his huge dog, Skillax, brought into the room. One of the younger boys at the table was feeding an overweight puppy, which sent the huge guard dog into a fury. He lunged at the smaller animal and started barking the house down, upsetting several of the more delicate dishes on the table as well. Both animals started running around and around the room, with the guests watching with sneers, in copious and Ascyltos, or delight, everyone else. Neither animal, despite the chaos, would come anywhere near Nikiros, but in all the excitement, no one really noticed that. After the dogs had been taken out, Nikiros took advantage of a lull before the next round of savoury dishes to say that he was tired and would be heading home. "'It's the full moon tomorrow,' said Inculpius with a sneer. "'Aren't you afraid to be walking home alone at night? Should we send one of Trimalchio's door guards with you?' Nikiros absentmindedly scratched behind his ear. "'I have nothing to fear tonight,' he said. If I were you, Inculpius, I'd watch my back tomorrow. Don't be so sceptical about the supernatural. You might need to know this stuff someday. Inculpius sniggered again, but Nikaros ignored him. He said goodbye to Trimalchio, who was barely paying attention as he was setting up his next surprise for his guests, and left, the sounds of the party gradually fading into the background behind him. As he walked home alone through the dark and empty streets, Nikaros glanced up towards the nearly full moon and gave out a quiet howl. The end. Welcome back to Creepy Classics, the podcast that retells and discusses ghost stories from the ancient medieval and early modern worlds. This episode's story is based on a short section from a novel called Satyricon, written by Petronius, uh, sometimes thought to be Petronius Arbiter. He is a nobleman uh, from the court of Nero in the first century CE. The Satyricon has survived in fragments, so we have sections uh, of the novel 
some bigger than others so we can get a sort of idea of the overall plot uh, and you can have a look online for a plot summary um, it's basically a sort of comic sexcapades story um, about the comic misadventures of Encolpios who is the hero who of course appears in my story in a slightly less heroic light the biggest surviving section from the Satyricon is known as the Cana Tramalchionis, which means Tramalchio's dinner. It is a dinner party hosted by a freedman called Tramalchio, and it is quite possibly the most famous section as well as the, the longest and best preserved. It also was the subject of the best exam answer I ever wrote in my undergraduate degree, <laughs> where I talked about how uh, Tramalchio is essentially the worst imaginable dinner host. Uh, the question said, oh, is he a typical freedman? I said, well, he is the worst dinner host this very snobby writer can imagine. And the worst dinner host Petronius can imagine is a freedman, which tells you something about what Petronius thinks about freedmen. Whether it tells you anything about freedmen themselves and their actual lives is rather more debatable. <laughs> but that's, uh, that's the setting, and it is this ridiculous, elaborate dinner party We'll probably come back to it in the future to look at some more of the stories from it. Uh, there's also a great section where Tramalchio stages his own funeral. Uh, and I kept uh, a slightly earlier section from it that I put on the beginning of my story um, with the pig that gets split open and sausages fall out just because I've always thought it was hilarious. Uh, but Encolpius spends the entire party sneering at everybody around him. Uh, as he does in my version. And one of the things that these people do that he sneers at and thinks is ridiculous is tell these horror stories. Uh, and in Nikaros's case, uh, he tells a story about a werewolf, which is the basis um, for uh, the story uh, that I just told. And uh, this episode, I'm absolutely delighted to have a very special guest. With me is Dr Liz Gloyne, reader in classics at Royal Holloway, University of London, and the author of Tracking Classical Monsters in Popular Culture, a book that looks at how we've been using and responding to classical monsters since the 1950s. So this, uh, this episode's story choice was Liz's. Um, obviously, she has an abiding interest in classical <laughs> monsters. So chose the werewolf story. So Liz, what first drew you to this story? I've been hanging around with this story one way or another since I did A-level Latin, would you believe? Um, we had a very i've never seen this book anywhere else but sort of as a as a sort of preliminary getting you getting you better at grammar book we had a sort of a book with exercises with simplified bits of the Cana Trimalchionis, the dinner of Trimalchios, which is where this story is told um which in retrospect as a as a choice of text to keep sort of 17 and 18 year olds interested in grammar was a pretty good choice actually yeah. um that is a good one but i then went on um during my undergraduate degree um we the the, the dinner at Trimalchios was um a set text to sort of part of one of the modules that i did and um my first ever grown-up academic article was also about um the 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 Satiric, the dinner at Trimalchios, the satiric and more broadly. Um, so I've I've just sort of been hanging around this particular text for years. I teach it now. Um, so when you sort of said, well, what what kind of story would you go for? This was an obvious place to go because it's a it's a brilliant. I mean, can I call it a shaggy dog story? I suppose I can, even though it's a wolf. Um, but you know that that kind of <laughs> drunk folks sitting around pulling each other's legs kind of kind of story um 
yeah, it's it's just good fun, really. Yes, and I um, I kept the framing device um, and had it told at a dinner party. When I sat down to adapt it, I thought, well, I could do this as a straight story. I could tell it as a straight werewolf horror story. But I thought, no, I'm I'm going to keep the dinner party. Um, I, I think maybe that's important. How important do you think the context of this story is for our understanding of it? I think it's really important because of who is telling it that you've got this freedman who is who's turned up to this dinner party given by Tremalchio, who's this who's this guy who's just this guy you know, safe old people box style, um, giving um lavish dinner parties on a regular basis, you know, very much the nouveau riche has too much cash, um, doesn't know what to do with it, doesn't know how to use it properly, is sort of over the top indulgent and daftness and sort of the bit you keep at the beginning, which is about sort of the the, the joke about the, the the pig that hasn't been gutted and turns out to be full of, of sausages and stuff, you know. Um, My favourite bit of the whole thing. All this kind of over the top theatrical food gag joke stuff you know um and then everyone who is there is kind of in a kind of we're putting up with that because it's free meal and we've got to sort of do our bit which is obviously being oh yes oh lovely yes lovely dinner Mm. um but in the case of um the this moment the, the the payback for dinner is is the story um so i think without having the framing narrative and understanding that these folks I mean I think the other thing about this is about class right um mm. that Nicaros himself is a freed man he is um not you know educated in high stuff and that's really important because of reading werewolf stories and the werewolf tradition in the Roman period as a folk tale um mm. and having somebody of this kind of status i mean the whole point of the satirican is that it's not about heroes um so the whole point of the novel as in in terms of what we have surviving is about the 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 anti-hero encolpius bumming around (laughs) the bay of naples um getting into scrapes in sort of the demimond the half world the underworld of of uh, sort of really normal roman social life right um obviously amplified for comic effect but but the whole point is that this is a strata of society that isn't tacitus would not write about these people let's put it that way <laughs> no he wouldn't <laughs> um tacitus would firmly firmly hoik up his toga and cross the side of the street right this is this is this, this is why i love teaching this novel to my first years who who you know this is this is not the toe rome that you have in your head this is a, a messier muckier grimier um, very different kind of Rome to have. And I think that sort of thinking about this story coming from that tradition of folk story, from that tradition of um, sort of a different class structure to the kinds of stories you might have coming from other places, I think that's really important for understanding what's going on here. And this is our first story uh, on this podcast that's not about a ghost. Um, it's one of the things I've noticed as I've been researching ghost stories that I started out couple of years ago with a very firm intention of doing only ghosts and I was very strict about what a ghost was as well it was going to be um only uh spirits of dead people I wasn't even going to do gods that pretend to be ghosts or anything and I've I've been less and less strict about my definitions of of what a ghost is as I've gone on because I've realized not just modern scholars but ancient writers uh put a lot of different um monsters maybe or beings um supernatural things 
into the same category. And I think modern folklore and modern literature has the same tendency. So uh, we did have a witch involved way back in the first story as well, but it's, it's been pretty strictly ghost apart from that. What connections do you think there are between ancient ghost stories and other ancient monster or supernatural stories? Well, I think werewolves sort of do have, in the Roman tradition, do have quite a close connection with, with ghosts, with the dead, that kind of story, the kind of supernatural stuff. I mean, in this particular example in Petronius's text, um, he, he sort of, the, the transformation is happening in a cemetery. Now, obviously, the cemetery is also a road because of the way that Romans do their cemeteries. It's not sort of as we think of it as being a modern cemetery. You know, uh, Romans put their tombs on roads outside their cities to avoid sort of the, the, the pollution, certainly in Rome, of being inside the pomerium, the big city boundary. But that kind of method of burial is, is a thing. So taking place, the transformation taking place among the tombs kind of puts this in a kind of ghost story kind of space. Um, and there's also lots of ghost language in the original Latin um about you know being being pale as a ghost and all that kind of stuff and being frozen scared to death and you know so that kind of transformational stuff um is still very much um part of um how the werewolf is being seen um but again, the fact that the, the 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 land with which the the land on which the werewolf turns for Petronius is this this area of the graveyard is sort of showing there is there is that that crossover that that distinction between what it is to be human. Um, ghosts obviously have been human once and are no longer, um, and the werewolf goes through a similar transformation of being human and then not being human. Right, so they're both about interrogating the boundary of human identity and what it means to be or not to be human. Oh, you got me distracted by the Hamlet quote there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm on another ghost altogether. Sorry. Um, oh no, not at all. Um, actually, it's interesting. You mentioned you first came to this. Was it A level at mm-hmm. school? One of the resources that I used heavily uh, when I was writing the story um, was the University of Cambridge School Classics Project Teacher's Notes um, on the Latin, uh, which were incredibly useful. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting in those was what is translated in English often as um, my heart leapt into my mouth, which is a fairly common English phrase, in the Latin was... um, a reference to the the soul and the breath leaving your body at the moment of death, like mm. which I remember most vividly from Homer. You know when they they breathe out their soul. Um, so I tried to get that across in uh, in my sort of translation and reworking of it, but it's hard to get across in English. I think that sense that the character feels like his his soul is literally about to escape his body into death. Yeah, it's a kind of language of of experience of. Um that last moment that we, we 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 don't talk about that in that way anymore um mm. you know i mean i suppose the closest we we might have a sort of discussions about i saw the bright lights at the end of the tunnel and i went towards the bright light right that's kind of the mm. the, the the rhetoric and the language around which we might describe that sort of feeling now um but yeah as, as an idiom it's sort of um I mean, another great one that I picked up from the um, the the Cana, um years ago was rather than saying um, my heart is in my mouth, my spirit is in my nose. Oh, that's brilliant! I know, isn't it? Isn't it great? You know, so, you know that, that that was that was the Roman idiom for exactly the same, yeah. exactly the same feeling. That's fantastic. That that sounds a lot more fitting with the sort of comical 
um, Trimalchio's dinner scene than I, I was picturing Homeric heroes um, giving up their souls on the battlefield. <laughs> Um, um, but, yes. but, oh, that's fantastic! I know, um, but I mean, it's it, it. I can't remember where in the Cana it turns up now. But this kind of very, I, and it is it is spoken language, right? It is colloquial. Mm. That's sort of one of the real things you sort of note about the um, about the dinner at Trimalchio section of the, of the Syricum is that the Latin is unashamedly colloquial dialect, chatty, you know, grammatically casual. Um, you know, this is this is a story that is being told orally to entertain. It, it's not that kind of polished, mm. prepared, very, um, very literary Latin, for want of a better word. That I, mean, I don't. The know. way people really talk. Exactly. Maybe, it's it's, it's sort of re- it is. It's sort of trying to capture. Now, to what extent, whoever Petronius is aware of the way that Friedman of whichever city we're in have you know uh, actually talk mm. is a slightly separate question you know there is a True. there is a way in which there is a possibility this is a a parody a stereotype Trimalchio himself as sort of this over rich freedman is already playing into stereotypes of the hyper rich freedman who's you know better than he should be um which do not seem to match up to the realities of sort of roman social life we know that um but it's a figure of figure of anxiety, which turns up in a lot of elite literature. So, to what extent this is a this is an accurate representation of daily life, daily language? Who knows? But the important thing is that what it's trying to do is get across that very colloquial conversational style, um, and for it to be effective, it has to sort of hit at least some of the some of the right notes. Mm. I mean, Nikros is a Greek name, presumably, so they could even, the real people who were in that position in real life presumably might even have spoken Greek more than Latin in some cases. Well, absolutely. But that I mean, this also comes to sort of the conventions of how one names um, enslaved people mm. and where enslaved people came from. Um, and uh, sort of there, there's sort of some evidence um, about sort of naming enslaved people in relationship to the country that they had been enslaved from their country origin. Oh, it's like Nubia for a woman from Nubia. Exactly. Like yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, obviously, Nikaros is not sort of that blatant, but, you know, um, assuming this is sort of coming from a a place where we're thinking maybe this enslaved person has got Greek background. You can see that, you know, even though this person may have quite happily have had, you know, parents who, who would lived in Italy all of their lives, you know, they were still perhaps mm. seen as a Greek slave. It's, it's a, we don't get any background on these folks. We get, I say that, we get a bit of background on some of these folks, but Nikaros does not lead us into a lot of his story, apart obviously from what he needs to tell us for the, for the story mechanics to work. Mm. Another bit of language that I found myself thinking carefully about as I wrote this was the word werewolf, which is, of course, Anglo-Saxon from were, meaning man and wolf. Um, So I went with uh, skin changer um, as a translation of of the Latin. Um, What do you think about the similarities between our concept of a werewolf um, and a Greco-Roman idea of of a skin change or a werewolf is it always necessarily a wolf might this refer to somebody that turns into something else did they have that same kind of fixed idea of men who turn into wolves 
I certainly had the idea of men who turn into wolves. I mean, the first example of this that we get, I mean, well, the first, not the first example literarily, but one might say that the, 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 the uh, example, TM, um, is Lycaon. Um, who Ovid gives us the story of Lycaon. Um, he decides he's going to be one of these clever so-and-sos who tries to defeat the tries to fool the gods by feeding them human flesh. This never goes well. It never does. Um, never no. does. No, never works. Don't know why they keep on trying. But anyway, Lycaon. They um, keep think, trying. No, King Lycaon <laughs> thinks he's <laughs> going to have to go. Um, understandably, it doesn't work. He slaughters a Molossian hostage and tries to feed it to Jupiter, and Jupiter notices and is unimpressed. Um, for which his response his punishment is to be transformed into a wolf now obviously he doesn't then turn back but of course like mm-hmm. like aeon is where we get lycanthropy from which is the other um the other uh word you can use to describe the posh term for being a wolf. <laughs> exactly yeah so, they, so it's not entirely separate um I mean, other traditions, uh, so Pliny talking about um, Arcadian werewolf law, for instance, uh, Sid talks about um, the belief, a popular belief, which he, Pliny, of course, says isn't true, but I'm going to tell you about it anyway, because I'm Pliny. Um, uh, he's brilliant. <laughs> you might be entertained. Um, is uh, is that, that werewolves are subject to a curse. Um, and in that tradition, um, a family, a man from a particular family, um, hangs his clothes on an oak tree, swims across a marsh. At the other side, is turned into a wolf and lives with a pack of wolves for nine years. And then, if he has not eaten human flesh during that time, he gets to turn back to a human. So that is a oh. that's a very different kind of um, interpretation to the sort of we get in the Trimalchio story, which is our much more mm. familiar by day by night <laughs> sort of regular <laughs> regular transformation. Um, there's there's evil sort of some medical ev- evidence from this uh, from Marcellus Sedites who's writing in sort of the time of Hadrian and Antoninus Pius kind of that kind of that kind of period a bit later than this, um, and uh, he says that this is something that happens specifically in February, why not, um, where men go and hang around tombs until daybreak. Um, February, the month of the Lupercalia. Yeah, exactly. Oh. Yes, that, that would that Something would be wolfy about February. Apparently, yeah, that would that would be the yeah, only logical yeah. conclusion. Um, yeah. And uh, the idea there is they go and hang around tombs. They they're pallid, they're listless, they can't cry, they've got dry eyes, uh, they can't put on weight, they're thirsty. Um, they they end up sort of getting horribly covered in wounds, and they can't heal because they're being bitten by dogs who presumably are also hanging around at the tombs. Um, and the 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 the, the, the uh, explanation. Gives and this is a type of melancholia, so your humans are out of your humours rather are out of balance, and you need to be bled uh, to get you into the right kind of um, food. You need to be bled to get rid of the wrong humour, and then be given the right kind of foods to get you into the right humours. You need to have sweet bars and all that kind of thing. And if that doesn't work, then basically the advice is give you opium. Um, oh, of course. <laughs> so you know, basically, <laughs> drug you into drug you into sort of. Um, inability to go and hang around the tombs um which, I mean, it, it's, it's a choice <laughs> not sure it's, it's, it's an option I'm not, yeah. I'm, I'm not i'm not sure it would get past medical review these days but that's neither here nor there <laughs> um so so again I, I think in the ancient world you've got this spread of sort of a folkloric tradition about werewolfism which is specifically about wolves mm. um there are sort of some some evidence that you can end up with um uh, witches can also turn themselves into wolves but i, I think i'd draw a slight difference there in that that is mm. sort of about which is generally being able to overturn the force of the, yeah, the rules of nature 
rather than sort of the specific mm. association with the wolf. They can turn into birds as well. Uh, witches can turn into most donkeys. Witches can turn into most things if given half a chance. Yeah. Um, so you know, I, I, I see that that to me feels like that's part of the witch turning into animal mm. things tradition rather than specifically the werewolf tradition. Um, but Could yeah, put, um, uh, thing of me. What's his name? Re- uh, Remus Lupin from Harry Potter, right in between the two. Yes, exactly. Um, but as I say, I, th- I think sort of there there is kind of this spectrum of evidence about sort of this very folkloric sense of the werewolf, and then this attempt to sort of think about it medically. Which I mean, thinking mm. this is like what what's Hadrian under the first century AD. I mean that that is a very modern approach to to thinking about how to how to approach this and medicalizing it and sort of going ah oh, no these people are not really werewolves it is a medical condition that means they hang around tombs in February um, <laughs> which sounds yeah you know um, it, but yeah so there's clearly a it's coming back to sort of the question about how much it is like our modern werewolf myths I mean I think it's pretty close actually in terms of the bare bones um, one thing that maybe has got a little bit differentiated i suppose maybe ish is there's a big emphasis in the stories of on along, along eating human flesh and being bitten by werewolves as, as the thing that turns you um, ah interesting because i i put that in I, I deliberately threw in some bits and pieces of modern werewolf lore um when i was adapting the story and one of the things i threw in there um was being bitten which isn't part of necros's story in the original petronius text that's something i've added to give it more of an ending um but is that something that does crop up in in ancient stories then? well there's an Aesop there's an Aesop story which um is is sort of not really about a werewolf but is about the myth of werewolves and it's about a thief who goes to um uh, go is in an inn and he sees an innkeeper who's got a lovely new cloak and he goes I'll have that and the way he does that is he sort of sits next to the sits next to the innkeeper and then yawns, big yawn. He says, oh, I'll get out of here now if I were you. Why, says the innkeeper? Because if I yawn three times, then I'll turn into a werewolf. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Yawns the second time, <laughs> at which point the innkeeper, frightened out of his wits by sort of the, the tail that the, uh, the, the the thief has managed to spin him. I'm, I'm compressing here quite heavily. Um the, uh, the, the the sort of hands up, you know, bundles his cloak out or drops it, whatever he, d- you know, and goes, yeah. you know, legs it, and uh, the thief sort of picks up the cloak and potters off quite cheerfully. Um, but of course, that is about the fear of being in the same place as a werewolf who is going to attack you, kind of thing. Mm. Um, so that's sort of that that idea of sort of the idea of biting, harming, eating humans being very central to to the narratives i mean whether whether or not biting necessarily is always sort of turning into is 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 not always as clearly articulated as it might be in modern mm. law um so as i say that that bit from pliny about it, that, that, that it's a curse you know that that is mm. also um common um what about the full moon? Uh, that was another thing I threw in there that wasn't in Petronius. No, I mean, having looked through the sources, full moons don't seem to be a big deal, mm. um, from what I can see. Full moons don't get emphasised. One thing that's in the ancient sources that's dropped out the modern, though, is this idea of um, in order to turn back, you have to sort of somehow come back to your human self, um, which in Petronius is through reclaiming your clothes. That's also what you have to do in the arcade, in the Pliny story. That the chap who's hung his hung his clothes on this oak tree has to come back to get these clothes after nine this is years. Presumably, 
why he's turned them into stone. And exactly, things. yes. To stop anybody taking them. Exactly. That's a very odd detail. Yes, but, but it, it is about you have to come back to your clothes to come back to your humanity. Hmm. Um, and you have to, you know, if you're, if you're going to go off into the bestial, you have to come back to the human to be transformed. Um, so that, again, seems to be something that's fallen out of the modern law. Um, it just sort of, you know, it, it's much more now connected to the cycles of the moon. Um, whereas mm. the precise trigger for transformation um, in the ancient stuff seems to be a lot less clear. But again, also, I think we have a much richer now tradition of werewolf literature. Mm. Um, whereas the evidence in the ancient world seems to be very much traces of this flow folkloric oral storytelling tradition we don't you know the 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 material we have does not preserve those stories except maybe as ah what a curious story in Pliny (laughs) what a curious (laughs) tradition these these interesting foreign people have um or this sort of deliberate attempt at um I'm going to call it folksiness it's not quite right for what's going on there but the deliberate attempt at sort of the um lower class conversation that's coming out of the satirican or the attempt to medicalize that we get in that later medical texts and you know none of them are actually the kind of um for want of a better word, pulp literature that would now do werewolf mm. stories that we've now got in such abundance. So the fact that we can't connect everything is perhaps not so much of a surprise. I suppose unlike the ghost stories, none of them are being told seriously. Um, with the ghost stories, we've seen a mixture. Sometimes, like the Plautus one, which is made up by the character, sometimes they're uh, meant to be ridiculous um, and implausible and, and it's making fun but a lot of the ghost stories um, that we've looked at and will do in the future are told in quite a serious vein so we've looked at Curtius Rufus told by Pliny um, Pliny the Younger who is having a relatively serious discussion about whether or not ghosts exist um, and this seems to be maybe something that's missing from werewolf lore that it's always here's a silly story I heard rather than here is a thing that happens you know is 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 that what takes it into sort of this realm of folklore you might say i mean i guess one the one mm. example that might push against that in an interesting way is comes from pausanias um and this is explaining a a temple um that happens in temessa um and the story is apparently of oh, you, yeah. um of yeah you um euthemus of locri um who uh dies there and uh, is a ghost there we are comes comes to theme uh and um runs oh, yeah, we'll, rampage we'll definitely be doing this story at some point in the future because it's a brilliant one yes <laughs> so but anyway just without that spoiling it for your listeners um but anyway runs rampage the locals put a temp up temple up to him there's some human sacrifice um that ev- eventually um euphemus comes and disrupts the um uh the, the human sacrifice uh, and defeats the werewolf in battle and the werewolf here is meant to be the spirit of the the member of odysseus's crew who has um mm. Uh, perished at, uh, at Lockery. Um, sorry, at Temesa rather. Um, so you, you've got there this ideological explanation story. Now, I think ideologies are meant to be taken seriously mm. uh, because you know why would you give a reason otherwise? So I think I think in that particular example from Pausanias, it's not being told in that kind of weird humorous way. But on the other hand, we are doing origins of religion, mm. which are normally a bit creative um as a genre um mm. and we're in kind of the weird mytho history world of this is why we have this temple kind of story mm. so i think i'd sort of say that this 
that that particular story differs because it, it's being told in Pausanias, it's in that ideological tradition, whereas all the other things, as you say, have got that more colloquial, perhaps, um, that more, I mean, it, I, I keep on coming back to class here. I mean, were, mm. werewolves are perhaps classed as lower class stories than ghosts are. I mean, this is sort of very mm. much, I mean, we sort of, I suppose we sort of still see this, don't we, in the articulation of um, sort of the the, 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 mus- the muscly, um, burly working class werewolf versus the effete, um, uh, the effete sort of elegant vampire, right? I mean, that is sort of still a really classist trope in uh, the representation of fantasy figures um that I suppose that's true it, it's um it hadn't occurred to me because the fantasy series that i watch like supernatural and buffy the werewolves tend to be rather puny yeah. <laughs> when they're in their human form it's always the shortest smallest human characters uh who end up turning into werewolves in those shows um but yes uh broadening beyond <laughs> supernatural <laughs> and buffy um yes i can see what you mean so yeah, I, I mean, there is there is something sort of about our current context there that perhaps explains the ways in which werewolf stories are given less credence, as it were. The idea that this is folk tale, the idea that this is um, superstition, mm. and I guess sort of thinking about it from a religious context, actually, if you think about um, Roman um, religious festivals. There are a number of Roman religious festivals which are about the dead and honouring the dead and placating the dead. In February. Mm. Um, Is it the Lemuria in February? It is the Parentalia. Parentalia. Um, I believe. The fact I can think of two. (laughs) Two festivals about keeping the dead happy. Um, If I remember right, it's Parentalia in February, Lemuria in May, and there's something else in December that Ovid didn't get around to writing about that we don't know so much about. Splendid. But, you know, the very fact that there are multiple festivals about honouring, placating, remembering the dead mm. indicates that in terms of wider cultural thought, there's a there's a higher profile, a higher significance given to ghosts, whereas werewolves are very much in the... In, it, it, yes, in, in that folkloric tradition that doesn't Mm. get the same kind of cultural capital that ghosts do. I suppose it partly comes back to what we think of as folklore as well. It's it's another thing that I'm currently taking a very broad view of because um, some of the things I've been reading have talked about ghost stories shared by people where it's something that they say they experience themselves and often something, not an exciting story so much as an experience with a deceased relative, which... I wouldn't have thought of as folklore a few years ago, um, but have been encouraged through wider reading to include. But I suppose there are different strands of folklore in that sense. There's there's a difference between here is something that relates to my belief about the afterlife and here is a story about a werewolf. Um, yes, maybe. especially since <laughs> especially since even though there is this connection with de- with, with, with death and the dead it is articulated i think much more through what it means to be human mm. than what it means to be well to, uh, than about life and death yeah it's it's a different kind of ontological question um yeah. about about being an identity i mean be, go, ghosts is about what happens when you stop having this particular set of being whereas werewolves are about the line in between the human and the animal mm. and ghosts is about 
when you don't have a body at all, werewolf is the the transformation of that body into something inhuman and, and absolutely yeah, and in question in questions mm. of hybridity um and you know being being both and whereas mm. ghosts are very human they're just dead yes <laughs> absolutely well on that note <laughs> <I> think... <laughs> <Cheerful as> it <laughs> is. I think that is a perfect description of a ghost. That's <laughs> <laughs> a, a wonderful summation of what a ghost is. It's human, <laughs> just dead. Um, so, yes, fabulous. On that note, I will say thank you very, very much, Liz Gloyne. Uh, it's been wonderful to have you uh, on, on the show, on the podcast. Uh, please do come back if there are any other stories that you'd like to talk about. I'll keep my future. eyes open. <laughs> um, and hopefully we will see each other in the flesh again at some point soon. Thanks, thank thanks very much for having me. Thank you so much once again to my special guest, Dr. Liz Gloyne. You can read more of her work in her book, Tracking Monsters in Popular Culture, or her earlier book, The Ethics of the Family in Seneca. And thanks also to the University of Cambridge School Classics Project's teacher's notes, uh, especially for the explanation of the time of night, uh, something that we didn't talk about in the commentary. Um, most of the English translations say that the transformation took place at Cockrow, and the moon was shining bright as daylight. Not a full moon, but bright as daylight. Um, now, this threw me completely because Cockcrow surely is dawn. So how is the moon still shining? Um, so thank you very much to the teacher's notes um, from the Cambridge School Classics Project, which explained uh, that this time that is referred to as Cockcrow is actually two hours after midnight. It's the last watch of the night. So it's the watch that leads up to Cockcrow and the dawn, but it starts at a point where it's actually still dark, uh, a couple of hours after midnight. Um, so thank you very much for that explanation. That saved me uh, an enormous headache of trying to work out exactly what was going on in this story. Well, that's it for this month's episode of Creepy Classics. If you would like to read Petronius's Satyricon, you can find a translation by A.S. Klein at poetryandtranslation.com and that has all the surviving sections of the Satyricon, including, of course, Trimalchio's Dinner or the Cana Trimalchionis. Creepy Classics is written and performed by Juliet Harrison. Music and sound composed and performed by Ed Harrison with assistance from Olivia Knopps. Special thanks this week go to our guest, Dr. Liz Gloyne. The show is produced by Juliet Harrison with assistance from Newman University.